This is a diet of Brussels. Uh, the tunnel. Well, we're in the tunnel now. Uh, the last episode that we had, I was talking about an end game and you know how we were moving towards a deal. And uh, well, we're still sort of somewhere in that strange period. This is quite a difficult time to be making comments because a lot of it is speculation, even more than usual. Uh, negotiators have sequestered themselves away, that they're in this tunnel where they're focused on getting towards the final outcome. And part of being in the tunnel is that they don't come out of the tunnel and tell people how the digging is going. What's clear, though, I think, are a number of things that are useful to bear in mind. The first one is that the text is only part of the situation uh, in terms of what does it say on the piece of paper. Now, that might seem a bit odd, uh, but if you think about the way that this has gone, a lot of the negotiations have not really been about the words on the paper so much as how those words are interpreted and how they can be sold. And it's evident that there is a considerable amount of concern on both sides of the table about the ability of the UK to ratify the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration as it comes into being. Now, we've touched on this before, but it's worth rehearsing some of the arguments that come again, because ratification is going to be a real challenge. If we think about the withdrawal agreement, it's a terrible, terrible document to be trying to sell to people because uh, for the UK, it is all about costs. It's about the financial liabilities that the UK will have once it has left and ceased to be a member. It's about the uh, obligations that the UK will have to make to EU citizens past Uh, the 29th of March. It's about the arrangements for a transition period where the UK will be a pure rule taker, it will follow all the other rules of the EU except for having a voice and a vote. And it extends governance uh, mechanisms associated with that, including the role of the Court of Justice, which has caused so much uh, political debate. All of those things will be there. And there's not really any... Uh, benefit. I, I say that, and clearly the one thing that strikes me is that uh, that language about EU citizens in the UK also applies to UK citizens in the EU. But frankly, given that those citizens have not been a central part of the debate here in the UK, that is going to be pretty small uh, consolation to a government that uh, has sold uh, the project of Brexit as being one of the sunlit uplands and the wonderful things to come. The consequence of that cost-laden withdrawal agreement is that there is a lot of pressure right now to have nice things uh, encased in the political declaration. So that's the document where we're going to see the advancing of what the future relationship might look like, the way in which the UK will be able to simultaneously sign up to a backstop arrangement and 
to uh, find that uh, it doesn't need to use that backstop because that is a central part of the gambit that is going on. Now, a lot of the debate that's uh, going on at the moment about backstops is uh, faintly ridiculous. That Still, we have a, a Brexit secretary who is asking if the backstop arrangement can be uh, one from which the UK can withdraw, which would seem to uh, negate the entire purpose of a backstop. But uh, it's, uh, it's clear that there needs to be some kind of language that allows the UK to say legitimately that it is in a, oh, not legitimate, but credibly, to say that it is in a position where the backstop is not going to need to come in because they will be able to find alternative arrangements. And this takes us maybe to the core of the development in the past week or so, which is the EU's concession that the uh, customs arrangements can cover the whole of the UK, uh, rather than just that of uh, Northern Ireland, which is what they'd said previously, which allows Theresa May to say legitimately that there won't be customs checks between uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Now, that solves one problem, but this has been evident since the very start, since before the start, customs is not the entirety of market integration and market regulation. In fact, it's a very minor part. So what still remains to be addressed is the extent to which the UK is aligned with the rest of market regulation. So that might be standards about labelling or about environmental regulation or worker safety standards or things like that. All the things that are just there in the background which uh, matter uh, because they can become barriers to trade, which is why the EU has tried to do a lot of work on that front so that there aren't barriers to trade between member states. Now, uh, that is a, a much less clear uh, part of the uh, process. And really, this whole situation, I think, continues to reflect the, the fundamental issue with the UK's position, which is that it doesn't know... Uh, definitively where it wants to take this process towards. So remember that a lot of what we're talking about now is about a period after the end of a transition period moving into a future relationship. So we might well have the period until March with membership, a period from March to the end of 2020 under the transition arrangements, which will basically be like membership, but without that UK uh, vote. Then a new period of transition, more properly, because things would be changing, into the full implementation of a new relationship. Now that timeline might shift, it will shift, but uh, uh, those would seem to be the stages. Now uh, the problem is, is that you can't have that second transitional phase, an implementation phase of the future agreement, if you can't decide what you want that future relationship to look like. Uh, and the the consistent failure in the UK debate has been uh, that of settling on a plan and building a consensus that is sufficiently robust around that plan. Therefore, a lot of the discussion that's going on now, which, remember, is about a withdrawal agreement, it's about ending membership rather than about starting the new relationship, 
is about providing reassurance to various people that certain things will or won't happen uh, in the negotiations that will follow after the UK leaves. So we add layers and layers of complexity and uncertainty onto this process, which really leave uh, people in a very difficult position when it comes to negotiating this thing. And also, just come back to that point, uh, this issue of ratification. One thing that seems to occur is that timelines will matter a lot in this. We're coming to a point now where we're probably in the last week, uh, in terms of seven days, where uh, you could close a deal off with enough time that you could then have that emergency European Council summit at the end of next week, so the uh, 15th and 16th of November, uh, that probably after the 7th, uh, not the 7th, uh, after the 12th, so next Monday, you probably don't have enough time to get everything in order that you could uh, sign things off. And even then, that's leaving things very fine. So we have a series of uh, discussions that go on. We have uh, the technical negotiations. We have some political contacts going on too. But... Part of that will be about when does the British government feel that it is in its strongest position to take that deal and run with it through the parliamentary ratification. Now here we have considerable uncertainty and one of the things that has become a much more live issue is whether and how uh, ratification uh, works. I won't get into that yet. I think that's something that is probably worth saving until we actually get to a deal because uh, there's no point worrying about things that may or may not happen. But it's clear that Parliament is going to have a very difficult time managing its expectations of what it can do in that ratification process. In essence, what a lot of critics would like is to be able to take the deal, amend the deal, and then send it back and force the government to negotiate and get that uh, amended deal approved by the EU. Now, the EU have been quite reluctant, is maybe the wrong word, but have not been terribly forthcoming about this. But the impression is, is that at the point that a deal is signed, the EU will say that is the deal, that there will be no amending, no modification, uh, subject to, you know, uh, a very major change of uh, British government policy. So minor amendments are not really going to be uh, uh, an option in this process uh, because the government will be able to say uh, we can't make the EU accept this uh, and you haven't got time to do this. So probably that means the UK uh, is going to be faced with either accepting the deal as it is, which would be Theresa May's preferred option, uh, relieving without a deal, which would be the option of some uh, hard Brexiters, or alternatively going through some process where it opens up a new option, be that around a second referendum or if there's a uh, major revolt, perhaps you have a collapse of the government, uh, leading to a new general election. Now in those situations, oh, we've got a whole new world of 
complexity that, that comes in. But I think at the moment, uh, I think we would have to assume that those look like less than likely options, that uh, the Tory party is uh, unhappy about uh, Theresa May's uh, negotiating, but not unhappy enough to risk uh, getting into the complexities and the pain that would come with a general election uh, or a second uh, referendum uh, on that deal. So actually the meaningful vote is likely to be not that meaningful. There's not really much opportunity for Parliament to build more uh, breadth of support uh, for that text, particularly if we assume that opposition parties are likely to use this as an opportunity to try and uh, collapse the government. Uh, and already strong indications from uh, some parties, including Labour, that they would vote against uh, the deal. All of this weighs on the minds of negotiators. That uh, There's a question about how much you can use the ratification difficulties. And let's also remember there are ratification procedures on the EU side, which are potentially less problematic, but equally might cause some issue. How much you can use that to then shape the content of the deal? And here we come back to this uh, issue in the tunnel that uh, you might need to find some nice words which uh, make people feel happy enough about the contents to allow it to pass, at which point you can then unwind what that might actually mean in detailed practice. Pulling this all together, then, we can raise some questions about the longer-term path of this process. For me, one of the, the striking issues of the entire Brexit process has been the unwillingness or the inability of British politicians to build a consensual debate. There's been a lot of antagonism uh, on all sides. There has been a striking lack of bridge building between different groups. And this process is likely to exacerbate that even further. That rather than seeking the broadest possible support for a withdrawal agreement, and you can kind of see why she doesn't need to do that, Theresa May is going for, let's get this through and let's get through to the next stage. Now, here again, the, the practicalities and technicalities of uh, the Article 50 process, I think, are, are worth bearing in mind. For all the debate that we've had about what kind of model do we want of our future relationship with the EU, Norway, Canada, Canada Plus, Switzerland, uh, Iceland, Ukraine, whatever, uh, that's not what we're talking about here. That even where it does pop up in the political declaration, it will not be a binding binding commitment it will be uh, an aspirational piece of text now uh, with that in mind uh, this is if you like a, a more technically narrowly technical exercise this is about getting the UK out of membership into a place transition where it can finally make some decisions about what the future relationship will look like so the problem here is, though, that uh, in treating it as such, as a technical exercise, 
there is a risk that the government again finds itself opening up more opposition to its plans at the point that it seeks to uh, advance and articulate those and that it uh, poisons the well of whatever model comes from it. Now here we kind of fall into the issues of personalization. It's, it's evident that part of the dislike of Theresa May's plans is that they are Theresa May's plans, uh, regardless of what uh, intrinsic merits or demerits they might have. Since the general election uh, last year, we've seen that there is a strong compromising of Theresa May's position internally, that uh, it's hard to see how the party would uh, ever want to go back to the polls with her as their leader, given the experience, particularly against Jeremy Corbyn, who has demonstrated his much greater abilities in campaigning compared to hers. Whether somebody else is able to bring a more successful uh, image and leadership uh, to a new package is very much a moot point. Uh, the general level of confusion uh, and uh, contradiction uh, between different uh, members of the cabinet, of the opposition, uh, on all sides, uh, doesn't give great confidence that a new plan and a new leader will be able to come forward with a clearly articulated project. I say that, bearing in mind that there are people who have relatively clear projects, but those projects tend to be the more extreme ones, either very soft or very hard. And what we know is that uh, usually in politics, I say that very advisedly, given the record of the past three years, usually we don't take the more extreme options. We tend to take the more moderate options that uh, exist, that in building a compromise, uh, both internally and externally with our negotiating partners, because again, it's not simply that the UK pulls a model off the shelf and says we'll have that one. It's going to be something where there's going to have to be some process of give and take, of compromise. We see that already with the withdrawal agreements, which is much narrower in its remit that these things are likely to be a mixed uh, model, a mixed economy of uh, elements. So the ability to articulate and defend that more complex reality is always a more problematic uh, aspect because often that uh, complexity of the reality is not going to be modelled on an ideology or a core idea except for possibly one of pragmatism, but uh, that then leaves the person who's trying to defend it open to charges of inconsistency and of weakness in the face of external pressure. So those who have the more extreme plans always have the benefit of those extremes being much cleaner and simpler to articulate to publics and medias. The real test of this, I think, will come at the point that we have the debate about ratification and about uh, the future uh, direction that emerges in that political declaration. 
As we come towards the end of the tunnel, and I think we do have to come out of the tunnel relatively soon, quite aside from the November deadline because we're running out of time, it will be a part of the debate that needs to emerge. So how much can we be clear about where we're trying to head to? How much can we be clear about uh, the necessity of taking a more complex view of negotiations rather than saying it's all down to one simple thing and what is the toleration of public opinion for what will be another seemingly time tiring round of uh, justifications and attacks and counterattacks. on the track record that we've seen so far we can't be all that positive uh, about the process because it will be something that is going to be difficult and painful. We're going to see some very sharp things said in that ratification process. And at the end of all of that, the best case is that we have a text that is agreed which allows the UK to leave in March next year and then we can start all over again on the much more complicated work of negotiating that future relationship. On that happy thought, I will leave you to your week and I will see you at the other end of the tunnel. <laughs>